Chapter 6, Quest for Certainty. The opening quote for this chapter is from Pliny the Elder. The only certainty is that there is nothing certain. There I was at the age of 28, awake to a tendency that had sabotaged my happiness for decades. Now, badly wanting a way out and sensing that only a permanent solution would do, I set myself the task of examining situations to discover their triggers and my reactions to them. I made note of the times, places, and circumstances of its operation, searching for the common thread between breakdowns and my habit of becoming another. Like a mad scientist searching for his cure, I examined everything without everyone's considering that doing so was motivated by a deeper need, which was itself the cause of my problems in the first place. It was the quest for certainty that in my haste to feel safe compelled me to confuse what I believed for what was real. Ultimately, it was this insight which awakened in me the need to cultivate an ability to tell the difference. Have you ever thought about your quest for certainty? I certainly had not until I found it hidden within every thought, emotion, belief, and behavior surrounding the circumstances of my talk with Atari. I wondered how it was that I'd spent my entire life consumed by the mandate to become certain about what would make me safe, like others quested for their holy grail, and yet remain completely unaware of the pursuit. How could something that was so fundamental to my relationship with the world perpetuate an illusion of arriving somewhere that did not exist, and yet I failed to notice? More importantly, how had I been drawn into the battle that existed between belief and reality without recognizing that their conflict could not be solved so long as I insisted they were equals? Oblivious to this fact, I continued to wander from each discomfort to its apparent cause in search of an appropriate solution, subject only to the gravity of my need to be certain. But unable to escape or truly understand the initial dilemma, I could only go in spirals like a planet in orbit around its sun. Ever vigilant in my desire to be aware of what was occurring, I found it challenging to distinguish what was actually happening in my experience apart from my beliefs about it. Frustrated, I finally demanded to know why it was so damned important that I arrive at a conclusion about anything. Why did everything have to mean something? Why couldn't it just be sort of passing through, not warranting any more importance than any other thought? And for that matter, why did I believe that everything I thought was true when constantly plagued by scolding thoughts such as, you can't do it, you'll fail, you can't do anything right, you know you're not good enough, everyone knows it, you're just a loser, a fraud. And yet, when the certainty of success seemed assured, that same voice would take authorship by extolling me. Wow, you're so brilliant. I knew you could do it. I bet they never saw that coming, did they? Just think, you're the envy of everyone around you, and even though no one thought you could pull this off, I always believed in you. It was insane how the voice worked both sides of the equation, deriding me first and praising me later, paralyzing me in one situation, then shamelessly coddling me in the next. Unable to give up, I continued my investigations until I began to see how my beliefs, not my truths, caused me to speak strategically to avoid the stuff I didn't want to reveal. It was as if I was a chess player in life who moved pieces to hide his intentions while soliciting responses from others that would keep his king safe. Ironically, not only did I behave like a caricature of myself, I was stuck in a job that relied on that very ability to do it well. Go figure. In order to be a successful recruiter, one needed a constant source of new contacts. To have that, we couldn't simply phone the front desk of a company and ask for the names of the people who worked there. Even when we asked very nicely, 
doing so only invited admonishment for attempting to steal or poach their people. Also, we couldn't call a company that was looking to hire and offer our help, expecting to be connected with the hiring manager. Whenever we announced our true intentions, our call would be directed to either human resources or to the dial tone, which made our job next to impossible. To get around this, Ted taught us a technique called rusing, which was designed to induce others to reveal the names of coworkers that could later be solicited as clients or as candidates. Here's how it worked. We, the recruiter, would call a company that employed the type of people we wanted. Sometimes we had a name, a phone number, or the extension of a real person, and sometimes we didn't. But when anyone answered the phone, we would pretend to be returning a call from someone whose name we had just forgotten. Then we would say, if I heard the name, I'd probably recognize it. Upon hearing this, the person on the other end of the line would ask a few questions to narrow down the name of the hypothetical person we were trying to reach. In our practice of rusing, we would take turns pretending to be a doctor, lawyer, insurance agent, banker, or even a pizza guy or auto mechanic, anything but the dreaded headhunter. When the call went through, a receptionist, department secretary, engineer, or technician would be on the other end of the call, who, wanting to help, would start speaking out possible names. Sometimes, even, they would read all the names on the phone list in alphabetical order. When that was done, depending on our skills as a recruiter or the mood of the person who had just answered our call, we might get directed to another group and use the first call as a reference for the next. You get the picture? We pretended to be someone else in order to do our job. Does anyone see the problem I might have had with this? I remember one time when a recruiter in our office called into a military technology company using an Irish accent and identifying himself as Seamus Larkin. Imagine his surprise when the person who answered the phone call was actually Irish himself and in taking the recruiter at his word, believed he was speaking with someone from his homeland. So he starts asking questions about his clan, where he lived and where he went to school. This actually happened, and yes, it was a very stressful experience for that recruiter because when the call ended badly, the company traced it, found our address, and sent a letter prohibiting future calls. I wouldn't be surprised if that recruiter still has the letter sitting in a frame in his office somewhere. During my first year as a recruiter, I employed this technique to get my job done, but I hated feeling that I was ever on the verge of being found out. After my experience with Atari, I was no longer willing to do this. Instead, I sought a means to do my job free of lying or pretending, thinking there must be a way for me to be who I am and have what I wanted. In fact, shouldn't everyone be able to be who they are and have what they want, all at the same time? It was in arriving at this question that I realized how I'd been trained to be in competition with others so that my gain required another's loss. Doesn't it follow that we subconsciously believe that others must fail in order for us to succeed? Isn't that the underlying premise of a capitalistic economy, even though it makes better sense for everyone to be who they are and have what they want? After all, don't we all feel more inclined to cooperate when we understand everyone will benefit? Naturally, the answer to this is yes. Instantly, the need to pressure or misdirect others for information was gone. In its place, my ability to inquire, notice, acknowledge, and accept what was arising in myself expanded to include the capacity to express what I sensed was going on in others. Before, I had conducted myself to secure my agenda and now proceeded from the desire to understand another's as well. What a breakthrough this was. Not only did this allow me to be authentic, but since most people were unaware of how they behaved, my willingness to express what I noticed about them without judgment was received as being insightful and freeing, thereby greatly enhancing the entire process. Even in the presence of initial skepticism, guarded wording, or obtuse dialogue, 
a sense of gratitude emerged for the role I played in freeing them from the patterns that drove their lives. This positive feedback allowed me to discover the direct connection that existed between what was going on in myself and those with whom I spoke. I now realize that the thoughts and emotions that arose in me were completely appropriate to the situations in which they appeared, when in the past I always felt the content of my experiences were inappropriate and unsafe. But somehow I'd been given insight about how to use them to navigate the circumstances of my life on the basis of how it simply felt to be me. There was no need to put what I felt into logical form that others could verify like I had done with my stepfather. The mere fact that what I felt each moment was self-validating released me from the need to justify it with logic. Instead, all I did was figure out how to put words around it while having no doubt about the fact that it was my truth. This meant that if I felt I was having difficulty conducting a search, I knew that something must have changed somewhere in the process. All things being equal, if I had been commissioned to find a candidate for a particular position, then that person had to exist for as long as the company desired it. That being true, if while conducting the search I felt the rhythm of the search seemed off, then something must have changed in the company that hired me. If things weren't panning out, I knew that it wasn't because I was talking to the wrong people or because I didn't understand the assignment or should look for someone else to blame for my lack of success. When I approached my search as a living organic process and yet noticed that I wasn't making any, I would call the client company to check in only to discover that something indeed had changed. Sometimes it was budget cuts, a hiring freeze, reorganization, suspended projects, an internal transfer, merger, or even a lawsuit that was altering the position of the company. Regardless of what it turned out to be, it served to change the nature of the relationship between the company, the recruiting process, and the pool of available candidates. It was as if I was the middleman in a conversation where one of the parties had simply walked away, leaving me to sense their absence and my inability to do the job. That was my clue. It was from a string of such occurrences that I began to realize that by sensing how it felt to simply be me, I could intuit what candidates wanted and what clients needed. I began to understand that it was impossible to have a desire, like a company had for hiring an employee, without it having an effect on the environment in which the need existed. In some way, everything was connected, or as Ted was fond of saying, there's an ass for every seat. So I began to look for the intersection between what the client, candidate, and I wanted, guided solely by how I felt. For example, when I was on the phone with a hiring authority, sometimes his language seemed vague in response to my direct questions. Sensing this indicated something hidden, I would notice how I felt in relation to it and accept what I found there. Often, I found fear, anxiety, and guilt muddled by thoughts such as, he's being evasive, they've already made an offer to another candidate, the position has been closed or put on hold, or an employee has filed for an internal transfer to fill the job. But when I accepted what I was feeling and trusted that it had purpose in relation to the conversation in which it arose, a clarity emerged in me free of judgment or emotional charge. Dave, when I just asked you about the status of the interview process with Mark, you seemed vague in your response, causing me to feel that something else is going on that may impact my search. Can you tell me about it? Now it was out in the open, and I no longer had to pretend that I didn't sense his vagueness. Gone was the need to hide my reactions while covertly trying to redirect the conversation away from what I believed to be an undesirable outcome. Instead, it was all out in the open and amazingly, somehow my discomfort had become the energy to transform the conversation in the best possible direction. Normally, doing this would reveal one of three conditions. There could be something going on in Dave's personal life that was expressing itself in the work environment. 
Perhaps a new variable had entered the search process, such as another candidate, lack of funds, an acquisition or merger. The last possibility would be a misunderstanding between the client and the candidate that was based on something encountered in the interview process. Regardless of the cause, the only way to uncover it was to inquire, which I did, guided by how I was feeling, and then I would notice what I felt to do next. Doing this had the immediate effect of neutralizing my fear, which allowed me to speak from a more authentic and truthful place. Then while staying neutral, what arose next became my guide to ask the next question. And yes, sometimes there was another candidate that was better suited for the job. Other times the company was in financial difficulty and needed to put the search on hold. But most often there was an unrelated issue or misunderstanding that I was able to locate because I had taken the time to inquire. In spite of everything else, one thing became very clear to me. Each of us resorts to fear when we interpret events to be counter to our ideas about what we think will make us safe. Because of this, we continuously get caught up in old reactions that were born of the past need to be safe, which do more damage than if we were to simply notice and accept how we felt so that we could respond authentically in the present. By approaching recruiting in this manner, the pressure was off and I no longer felt the need to conduct myself antagonistically to secure outcomes. Before, I had regarded others as the means to an end, but I found that in simply inviting their participation, the entire process became a collaborative effort and the need to perform was gone. All I had to do was notice and accept what I was feeling and then articulate what I needed to know next. When others responded, which invariably changed the content of my experience, the next thing to know arose inside of me, and I would proceed from there. Instead of filtering everything through my concepts, ideas, and beliefs about how I should be, an exhaustingly ineffective process, I now chose to be guided by something more simple and authentic, the self-arising content of my experience. As I took my first tentative steps towards authenticity, it began to relieve tension by providing a structure for moving through a lifetime of non-acceptance, So while I continued to be triggered into fear, anger, guilt, doubt, jealousy, and disappointment, I found that by asking, what am I feeling now? I could miraculously transform the direction of conversations. Over time and quite by accident, I found that just becoming aware of my internal discord would be enough to dissolve or transform it. And in those instances where it did not, I offered some form of it into the dialogue and voila, everything became different. I would feel free of the fear, which now transformed, better served the conversation. It was in this manner that authentic communication became so revelatory as to become the central thrust of my life, inspiring me to write a book on the spiritual aspects of the communication process. So I started taking notes as I experimented to see where the process took me, and then I began to share it with others as the basis for learning how to write about it. Although it would take the next 25 years, this is that book.